you'll please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 17 through 20 this morning. So I am not someone who appreciates leaders who tell us to go and do something just because they have authority. Um, I like leaders who ask us to do something because they're willing to go with us. And I think that's mainly a biblical understanding. I could be far-fetched there, I don't know. But as a pastor, sometimes that's easy for me to say in regards to this as a senior pastor. You know, I'm not going to ask you to go out and do yard work if I'm not willing to do yard work. I'm not going to ask you to clean a toilet if I'm not willing to clean a toilet. I'm not going to ask you to um, wipe up spills if I'm not willing to do it myself. And that's not that big of a deal. It was a little bit bigger of a deal as a youth pastor. Because youth pastors are weird people. I was one. Chris is one. And we know that we're both weird. But they would do these weird skits a lot of times trying to get the kids to laugh and invite your friends and do this. And there were some very disgusting skits that they would do. And there, I've seen them. I've never participated in them. And I've never asked any one of my youth to ever do one of these kind of skits. But there's skits where they chew things up in their mouths and they spit it into the mouth of the person next to them. One of the worst ones I've ever heard of was it's called the peanut butter skit. And so this is where you find all great things to use peanut butter for. And you can use it as a skin cream. You can put it on your beard to to shave. And they put it on as underarm deodorant kind of a thing. And they get to the point where they've run out of peanut butter for their bread. And so someone takes the bread, wipes the peanut butter from underneath the person's underarm, and then proceeds to eat it. So at that point, I'm throwing up in my mouth. But I'm a leader that would never ask someone to do that because I definitely have never, ever eaten peanut butter from underneath someone's underarm. And hopefully never will have to. But what is it about leadership in a leader's heart? See, we've gotten a glimpse over the last few weeks where Paul is talking to the Thessalonians because he had to leave very quickly. And he's writing back to them because he's telling them, hey, things are going on and people are lying to you and I want you to know who I am to you and how much I love you. And so we get a glimpse of what it means to have a leader's heart for his people. And so that's where we continue to find ourselves today. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, fathers, we come. We ask that this, this word would wash over us, that it would become alive to us, that it wouldn't just simply remain a story. But Lord, that we would grasp and understand what it means to have a leader's heart for his people, what it means to fight against an enemy, and then, Lord, where we find our hope and joy. 
So Lord, please teach us and change us this morning. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is a leader's love. And he starts by calling them brethren. So I change it up to a leader's love for family. And the things that we see out of Paul's concern for his people is that it's genuine. It's a heartfelt concern. It's an affection that he has for his people. It's a love, a true love that he has for the people of Thessalonica. And therefore, it is a substantial love. It's not something that's superficial. It's not something that you just are an acquaintance with. Again, um, last week I, I thought I was being punked. Um, someone, someone left the, the congregation. They said, Merry Christmas to me. And I was like, Merry Christmas? What the heck? But there's things like that that go on, like where people, like especially when the president goes out and they have like the president's address to the nation, they talk about where people would say different things because they don't think people are paying attention. So they'll say things like, I killed my wife today. And people are like, oh, that's great. That's shake your hand. And so I thought maybe I was being punked. Maybe they were trying to see, is this pastor really paying attention to the people when they leave? So I heard, Merry Christmas. So I was like, that's a little odd. But it's one of those things where, again, it's beyond just superficial. Because you can do superficial things with each other. But what Paul has, he has a substantial, real, genuine love for the people of Thessalonica. And what it becomes, and this is huge for us, especially in today's day and age, because we're not really about church. But what Paul is making, he's saying there's an importance to the church. And there's a commitment in love to the church. There is something special and unique that we do here. We don't just do Christianity on our own. God calls us to be a part of one another's lives, to encourage one another, to build each other up, to be in one another's lives. And when we do that, it should be doing it from the way that Paul teaches us. He says he had a longing for the people. And what he does, he calls himself when he says that we were left, when he said that in even we've been ripped apart, torn away from you. The word there means he's become orphans. So here you have Titus, Paul, and Silas. I mean, not Titus, Timothy, Silas, and Paul. They're the ones who are saying they've become orphans. They have felt the ripping apart of their relationship when they were removed from the Thessalonians. A pastor tells a story where he had gotten married and they went on a cruise and they went from New York um, to over to England. And so they go through the process. They come back a year later and they're looking at the video that the father had taken on the day when they left. And so they're watching and they see the, the ship living. They go past the Statue of Liberty. Then all of a sudden the, the video becomes very fuzzy and very wobbly. And the pastor said, thankfully, God stopped him from saying, what the heck did you do here? Because what he did is he found out that what had happened was the father was weeping. That's the understanding of what is being ripped away between Paul and the Thessalonians. It's like a parent to a child. One of our children flew to Chattanooga at 6 in the morning. So with the time change, they had to be checking in at 3 in the morning. So they were on the road. And here I am, 4 o'clock in the morning. Are you okay? You doing all right? Yes, Dad. Can't help it. 
That's what Paul's talking about. He has a genuine, affectionate love for the people of Thessalonica. And so he yearns for them, and he says, when we're apart, it's like I've become an orphan. And he says, so what happens is I have to remind myself that you're not forgotten. I might be physically removed from you, but you're still in my heart. You're on my mind. You're in my prayers. Again, one of the things I think we can genuinely do in, in, very, in a very real way is as you pray for people, as you think about them, text them, email Maybe even you millennials, call someone once. Let them know. You'll be amazed the amount of people that said, thank you, I needed that. You just never know how God's going to use it. So as God puts things on your heart, remind people that you long to be with them. And then Paul says he also had a desire. The desire was to see them face to face. See, one of the realities is that Paul felt responsible for the Thessalonians. He wanted to see them face to face. He wanted to be there because there is something unique. And again, I know we live in a day and age where we have some some great things technologically. And we can go on Skype and we have FaceTime and all these things. And they're all great, but they never replace touch. Never. And so there's a reality where Paul said, I want to touch you. I want to be with you because I feel the responsibility and the love for you spiritually and I want to be there. And as he says that, he he gives an intimate understanding because he's saying, I want to communicate with you, not through other means. I want to communicate face to face. I want you to understand my concern for you, my my love for you. I want to to hold your hand. I want to break, take your face into my hands and to look into your eyes. That's the love a leader should have for his people. But we don't always get to do what we want to do, right? <laughs> and there is a reality that what Paul tells us is he says, but Satan hinder us. Now, if I'm going to be honest, and if anybody's honest, and if you read any commentaries that tell you or give you a reason for the strategy that, that Satan did in regards to Paul, they're guessing. So there's an ignorance, a true ignorance of what does that mean when Paul uses this statement. There's nowhere else in Scripture where it defines what it is. We don't know. But Paul tells us he's been hindered by Satan. So we don't understand what that specific thing was. But we do know this. We know that Satan is a real, present evil. We know that. The Scripture tells us. And so there's the reality that what we understand is that we should recognize that Satan opposes us. And he has a strategy to do it. How did he do it? He tempted Jesus, remember? He tempted the Son of God. Hey, Jesus, just do one good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. Just do one good thing apart from God. He also seeks to oppose the gospel. Anytime that you want to go out and spread the gospel, Satan doesn't want that to happen. He wants us to be afraid. He wants us to think that we're going to lose our jobs. He wants us to think that we're going to go to prison. He wants us to think all those things are going to happen. Because he doesn't want the gospel to go out. Because what does the gospel do according to Jesus? It heals the sick. It set captives free. He wants us to think that there are people beyond the reach of the gospel. And those people don't exist. The gospel can change anybody's life. The question is, will we tell them? 
So he tempts Jesus, he opposes the gospel, but it also says according to scripture, he attacks churches and spiritual leaders specifically. So if we're a church and all we have is good times all the time, if all you are is ever fine, then that should be maybe cause for concern. I'm not saying that you should be devastated all the time. I don't think that's the way Satan does things. Satan's smarter than we give him credit for. And a lot of times he whispers in our ears. He causes doubts to come. He begins to build up dissensions. What does Jesus say to Peter? Remember this in Luke 22? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded. Listen to that. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. If you're a Christian, listen, Satan might be going before God and demanding to have a shot at you. But the next verse in Luke 22 says this, but Jesus is praying for you. So Satan is seeking to sift you, but Jesus is praying for you. And he's praying for you, not only for yourself, but again, sometimes we have things in the church that we would call friendly fire. Sometimes you win the war not by having um, things, but you try to get dissensions within people's own armies, people's own countries. If you can get people wanting to kill each other, then that takes away the big part of the battle, doesn't it? So we have to make sure that we watch ourselves because, again, there is responsibility that we have for our own sin. See, we can't always say, the devil made me do it when we sin. That's not true. There are entices in our own lives. We like to sin if we're honest in a lot of ways. Sometimes overtly, but sometimes covertly. But there's the enticements that we have within ourselves that incline us to sin. And a lot of times that happens within the church. One of the, sometimes one of the worst places to be is in the church. Because we talk and we spiritualize things. I remember one lady saying to me when I was a youth pastor in Chattanooga, she made this statement. I have to love you because God told me to, but I don't like you. I was like, that is so nice of you. But sometimes that's how we treat each other, right? I'll say I love you because Jesus or God or the Spirit tells me I have to. But I don't like you and I I don't even really care for you that much. See, it's that reality that, again, we have to understand that Jesus says, "How how will the world know that we're Christians? By the way that we love one another. So what do you think Satan's doing If Satan can cause dissensions, if Satan can cause you to talk about those people, then he's starting to win a battle. Here's the thing, though. Jesus gives to us forgiveness, and he teaches us how to forgive. Because what's the purpose behind forgiveness? Listen, forgiveness is where we, where we have a deliberate act of love, mercy, and grace. It's deliberate. Does anybody deserve forgiveness? No, that's why it's called forgiveness. We don't sit there and fight for our rights. We don't sit there and say, well, I'm right, so they've got to be the one to change. Forgiveness is saying, I deliberately give to you love, mercy, and grace. It's a decision, just like loving one another is. You decide. Every day, every moment, 
I decide to love you and to forgive you today because of what Christ has done for me. See, when we begin to to live that way, then what happens is we begin to understand that warfare can be won. We don't have to sit there and worry about Satan. Because remember, there is the supreme authority that God has. God is always in control. And Satan is God's Satan. There is nothing that Satan's allowed to do that God does not allow him to do. He's always underneath the rule of God. So God's hidden plan will never be thwarted. So he uses even the sins of people and of countries and of politicians and all of that he still uses for his good and fulfills his hidden plan. But he does tell us very specifically that we're to fight the fight. And it's what Mickey read to us earlier. It's the armor that we're supposed to put on daily. It's Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And the thing is, is you've got to remember that part of the armor, some of it's defensive. It's to protect ourselves from Satan. It's to be prepared But it's also offensive. You have the word of God. You have the ability to speak to the living God at any moment, anywhere. And again, I I know that for us Americans, it seems like, oh, we've heard that. Especially if you've been in church all your life. Oh, I get to speak to Jesus. Listen, if we were over in a Muslim country, you would be how many times a day bowing down on a mat Same prayers so that God was not angry with you. You serve the God who spoke planets and universes into creation by his word. And he knows you by name. And he tells you to stand and come into his presence, not to crawl. Not because you're scared of what he's going to do or what he's going to take away, but because he loves you. Because he chooses to love you and he gave you his son, Jesus Christ. That's a privilege that we do not deserve. It's a privilege that we should fight for and to put on every day and to go out there and say to Satan, not today. Today I go in the power of Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, setting captives free. So when we begin to grasp and understand what the power is and who the enemy is, then we can say along with Paul what he says at the end of this chapter. He says, but I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hinder us. We got that. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? So here we have Paul, first of all, he's saying, one, I want you to understand life. And, and again, the whole book of First Thessalonians is to get us to think about Christ's return. And again, I was going to do this. I forgot my rope, and it's not my idea anyways. I don't know if this was Louis Giglio or Francis Chan. I don't remember. It's not my idea. But there was one conference where one of these guys put out a rope, and he put it the length of the stage, and then he put one dot in the middle of the rope. And he says, here's the reality. That's your lifetime. The dot. The rest is eternity. What have you done to prepare for the rest of the life? See, it doesn't matter how much you have here. It doesn't matter what you do here. It's then. It doesn't mean you don't pay attention to here. It doesn't mean you don't pay attention to now. But where's our anticipation? 
See, it should be the question, we're living our lives in preparation for the end. And then the question then becomes to Paul, sorry, I'm a little behind. Think about the question they asked to Paul. Why are you doing this? Paul, at this point in his life, has been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been stripped. He's been shipwrecked. He's had to spend his own money, give of his time and effort. Why? Why, Paul? And he looks at the Thessalonians and he says, it's because of you. Man, I want you to know Jesus because Jesus is everything. So I'll do anything for you in order to become my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our heart. That's, that's our desire, isn't it, as a church? Not to simply just be here and look nice. And you do. And you came on a Sunday that's hard to get up. That's great. But it means more to when we talk to people out there. We tell them about Jesus and to come and worship him in here with us. And so Paul's talking to the brother and he says, you know what? Here is the joy that's in this world. And it's, he's sitting there and he says, you know what I feel? I feel God's pleasure when I do this. Because for some reason, going to prison buggers me up. I don't want to go. But to think that Paul counted it joy and he sang hymns in prison. That's his joy. It's like Eric Little, remember in Chariots of Fire, where he talks about why he ran. He says, I run because I feel God's pleasure. He likes it. He enjoys it when I run and he allowed me to run fast. What do you feel God's pleasure in? And it's not just pleasure as an individual. Listen, he puts us into a family. That's why we rejoice with Reed and Alexa. We rejoice with them. But it's also why we struggle with Tanny and Edward and others. It's, it's part of being the family of God. And so there's joy. There's sometimes there's a hardship. But he says in regards to this, in regards to God's pleasure, it becomes what? It becomes the crown of victory. Do you understand? Again, it's the winner's crown. And again, the boasting is the boasting for people coming to a saving knowledge of grace. Because he says that's where the glory is. The glory is in the next life. The glory is when Christ comes again. And so how does it happen? It happens as we love others, sacrificially and serving them. Is it always easy? No, it's not easy. But it's something we're called to. And as we have the opportunity to be called, listen, what Paul wanted more than anything else, as he had the concern for the Thessalonians, he said, I want you to be what? Safe at home with Jesus. I want you safe at home. I want to hand you over to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me finish with a story of a man named Samuel Rutherford. He was someone who lived during the time of the Reformation the Scottish preacher who went to a small, a very small church in Anwath from 1627 to 1636. In 1630, during his time, his wife and two children both died and he was imprisoned, okay, a little bit later on in a city of Aberdeen. And in the city of Aberdeen, he was uh, forbidden to preach. So what did he do? He wrote letters. He wrote letters prolifically. 
And he began to talk to the people that imprisoned him, so much so that they started to tell the people they couldn't talk to him because he was starting to change lives. His writings began to, to spread across Scotland, and he penned these dying words. Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Now, 20 years later, a young woman picks up Rutherford's letters and writes a hymn, 19 verses, of which we're going to sing all of them. No. But she writes a 19-verse hymn about Rutherford's writings, all about his glory in Jesus Christ. But I want you to hear two specific verses. Okay? Verse 10, Fair Anwath by the Solway. So that's the city that he was the preacher by a small piece of waterway. And he says, To me thou still art dear, and from the verge of heaven I drop for thee a tear. Oh, if one soul from Anwath Meet me at God's right hand. My heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. The hymn is finished this way. Because he's brought to be executed for his beliefs in Christ. But he dies before. They've summoned me before them. But there I may not come. My Lord says come up hither. My Lord says welcome home. My king now at his white throne. My presence doth command where glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I think I can get through this. I was going to have Neil come up and read it for me and just walk away. I think I can get through this. Fair north side by the harbor. To me, thou still art dear. In frame the verge of heaven, I drop for thee a tear. Oh, if one soul from north side meet me at God's right hand, then my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. North side, you are forever loved by me and your officers, but more than that, by Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we all be leaders with hearts like Paul, that we would have genuine love and faith for one another, that we would fight the good fight even against the enemy who seeks to destroy us, destroy our faith, and destroy our relationships. But Lord, may you give us the privilege of the joy and the hope, Lord, that you would save not just one, but many people through this church, so that our heaven might be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he gave to us and what he took away. Lord, we long for that day where here we turn. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more being jerks to one another. Just love for eternity. 
and the shadow of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen.